Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The history of the church, kind of like the history of any individual Christian, is full of many highs and many lows. So if you look at church history, you will find many times where things are at a low ebb. There is corruption within the church among believers. There are those in places high up in the church who commit scandal. The world laughs. It seems to triumph. Maybe the culture moves away from any sort of respect for the church, some of that being the church's own fault, other just simply being the work of the devil. And so spirituality reaches a low ebb. Many people claiming to be Christians turn away from the faith. That's happened cyclically throughout church history. We're sort of at a low ebb right now. But as you look at church history, you'll also note that just as consistently as you see spiritual life at a low ebb, you find it at a high ebb. There are times when God intervenes in history so directly and so obviously that it's hard to say anything except that surely the hand of God has done this. There are times when After a period of darkness, light emerges. Post-Tenebras, Luke's was the watchword of the Reformation. After darkness comes light, and you see that happen. In cities that were full of vice and seemed doomed to be full of vice forever, now hymns emerge from doors and windows as families worship. There is a change in the demeanor, not just of a church, but there are oftentimes a change in the demeanor of a nation. As the hand of God descends in power to change, to save, to convert, to transform. You see that happening cyclically throughout the history of the church. So you can follow church history like a kind of sine curve going up and down and then up and then down. So if you go into the late Middle Ages and you look at the church at that time, institutionally it was the Roman Catholic Church in the West and Scholastic theologians who were debating how many angels fit on the top of a little needle, little pin. Scholastic theologians and formalism, externalism had conspired to produce some coldness. There was ignorance, there was coldness in the church among those claiming to be Christians. And what followed? This darkness. The Reformation. As the truth, the gospel emerged and exploded and people believed in Christ. What followed the Reformation? Now the Reformed thinkers moved into a kind of scholasticism and a kind of secularism came in and there was a cooling off of that first zeal. And what followed the cooling off of that first zeal? The Puritan Revival of those who were committed to living fully for Christ, there in England especially. And what followed the Puritan revival, this zeal for God and holiness? England reacted by shying away from enthusiasm. That was too much and things went to a low ebb. And what followed that low ebb? The Great Awakening and millions, thousands are converted in England and in America And you could just follow that, and that's church history. And it's paralleled in your own experience as a Christian, isn't it? Of the lows and the highs, both of those. 
Now, I want you to know that revival happens periodically. It's not something that happens nonstop. I want you to know that because if you imagine that in your own life or in your experience as a Christian, you'll be quite disappointed. So don't expect there will always be revival. But on the other hand, don't we want there to be revival? <laughs> Who doesn't want there to be revival? We want there to be high ebb. It's what we pray for. It's what we labor for. We desire. We look back longingly on the great works of God in history. And we pray that God would do these things again. Even if we are not privileged and blessed to live through a national or international revival, at the very least, let every one of us pray and seek personal revival. But shouldn't we pray for national revival? Shouldn't we pray that the Lord would send laborers into a field that is white for harvest? Shouldn't we pray that the small, slow progress of the gospel that we experience at times of low ebb would explode such that neighbors and those who seem so far lost would flock to the cross and to Christianity? Shouldn't we pray for that? The answer is yes. We should pray for that. We should long for that to happen. We look back with fondness to the days when George Whitfield walked our shores during the Great Awakening, and he recounts how he would preach to masses of soot-faced coal miners, and he would watch the furrows, the streams of tears, driving away the soot down their faces as they heard the gospel and responded, don't we want that? We do want that. We do crave that. We do pray for that. Most importantly, we believe that can happen again. We believe that revival is not just a matter of the past. It's not just for history books. Revival is something that can happen. The text that we're looking at today in 1 Samuel chapter 7 is one of those reminders to us that revival is not out of reach. When things are dark and cold and revival seems out of reach, God can extend His hand and do more than we imagine or think. For two decades, in our text, for two decades, there had been darkness and idolatry in Israel. Samuel was on the scene, but if you look at the end of verse 2 in chapter 7 here, it says, The ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, and a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Eli's house has been judged. He was leading Israel. He was the priestly family. He was wicked. His house has been judged. But still, for these 20 years, religion is at Loeb in Israel. But then, revival. Let's see this starting in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. 
And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Now we know that the ark of the Lord was in Kiriath-Jerim actually more than 20 years. We know this because in the New Testament we're told that Saul's reign was 40 years. And Saul's reign takes place while the ark's at Kiriath-Jerim. So when you read there in verse 2 that the ark was there some 20 years, I think what's being said is that the whole ark in Philistia experience that we just walked through together in the text where the ark went into exile and then was returned from Philistia, between that point and the judgment of Eli's house, between that point and the revival at Mizpah, the national renewal at Mizpah, there were 20 years between those two. And the ark stayed in Kiriath-Jerim longer, but between those two, 20 years, that's a long time. That is a long time, and we see there that they lamented. Some translations say they turned to the Lord. What seems to have happened is that after 20 years, the ark was back, but the glory still seemed departed. 20 dark years, 20 years of idolatry, because they put away idols at the end of the 20 years here in Mizpah. So 20 years of idolatry and darkness are taking place. The glory still seems gone. And then, after 20 years, revival. And since what happens at Mizpah is such a good pattern, such a good picture of the pattern of what God cyclically does throughout the history of his interactions with his people, of reviving them after times of low ebb, we're going to look at this passage in that light. And so we are going to first see through this passage what leads to revival. Obviously, we care about that. And secondly, what does revival lead to? Those are the two headings for this message. So let's begin with, in this passage, what leads to revival? First, we can say that no revival, including this one at Mizpah, has ever happened without what we will call penitence or repentance. Start in verse 3 and see this again. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, and the meaning of repentance is returning, it's turning, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, 
And he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel, and this is something we don't read often in the Old Testament, put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, here's penitence. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, Mizpah itself, the name means watchtower. And therefore, there were actual, actually several cities in the ancient world that took on that name. So when you read the Old Testament, there are probably about six cities you encounter named Mizpah. They're different cities. Now, the Mizpah that's being described right here is on the main north-south road that runs through the hills of Benjamin. So this would be about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, if you're familiar with the geography there. This had been the Mizpah where Israel had gathered not that long ago, during the time of the judges, in Judges chapter 20, when there was a civil war against Benjamin. The Israelites fighting in that war gathered at Mizpah. We are going to see Mizpah again in a few chapters, because when they anoint their very first king, Saul, they will appoint him here at Mizpah. It's also part of the route that Samuel takes during his judging later on, we'll see as well. But more important than the city Mizpah is what happens there on this really remarkable event. It seems that Samuel, after 20 years, I mean, he could have called this congregation together at any point, but we imagine that for him there is a reason that now is the time. And he begins with that condition of, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, which almost seems a response. Maybe that's the meaning at the end of verse 2 when they lamented after the Lord, or maybe there was a turning. Maybe that was a turning back to the Lord that Samuel, as a leader, senses in the people and says, we need to get together at Mizpah and make this official, that we are, in fact, turning back to the Lord. This is a significant change over 20 years because 20 years before, Israel had a priesthood through Eli's house, very corrupt, but the people as well seemed to put their trust in a box, remember? When they were fighting the Philistines and not winning, they said, bring the box. The box will save us, meaning the Ark of the Covenant, and they were reproved for that. And of course, the fact that Samuel calls them to forsake the Baals and Ashtoreth means that they're serving the Baals and Ashtoreth. Those are the false gods. You remember, too, that 20 years before, there was a very great noise, just like in our text, but that great noise was the cheering of the people. When the ark came into the camp, the people cheered. There was a real enthusiasm and an excitement. We're going to defeat the Philistines now. We saw that was a false enthusiasm. God was not with them, and they lost that battle. Now, contrast what they were 20 years before with what they are now. 20 years before, excitement, enthusiasm, bring the box, destroy the Philistines. 20 years later, we have sinned against the Lord. And if you step back, and when the world steps back and looks at the very first of those two examples, you would think that 
the more successful outcome will go with the first. I mean, we are Americans, and we're all about positivity and positive thinking. It even creeps into our religion very much. Word of faith is just born out of the American way, that you be very positive and very confident, and if you're confident enough, you can get it done. Follow your dreams. That's American. That's very much our way. So when you look at the first one, there's such an enthusiasm and excitement surrounding religious ideas. There's the ark. And that turns out terribly, terribly. 20 years later, the people are fasting and pouring out water before the Lord and saying, we have sinned. Today, that would be quite discouraged. Say, that's low self-esteem. Don't say that about yourself. Don't talk, don't talk down about why all this sin stuff. That's puritanical. Don't talk about that stuff. Don't get so down on yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself. We think that will never turn out well. I mean, you're just deflating yourself if you're focused on your sin. Things can't turn out well. Oh, they turn out very well. <laughs> very well. The false confidence actually is gone. So seizing that moment, that's why Samuel says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals the Ashtaroth, the Baals, Baal was considered the storm god of the Canaanites, a false god, he's not real. The Ashtoreth, plural Ashtaroth, Ashtoreth, she was a fertility goddess worshipped by the Canaanites. So if you put Baals and Ashtaroth together, the idea is just all the false gods. Put them away. That's the idea here. Out with the idols, says Samuel. And amazingly, the idols go out. And you think, 20 years of devotion to these idols, why would you give them up? That's, a, that's a, like a half a lifetime or more of devotion to these idols. Why would they, when Samuel says give them up, they give them up? Well, verse 6 explains. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. They were willing to forsake those cherished idols because of penitence. Repentance. Broken hearts before God, true broken hearts. The pouring out of water there is a great picture. It's a part of their fasting, but it's really a great picture. We see David say in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water. That's a picture of grief. And Jeremiah tells the people, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. It's like just being poured out, can't get it back. You just pour it out on the ground. So they're pouring out the water on the ground. We're not going to drink that. We're fasting from that before the Lord to show our penitence and grief. But they're also pouring out their souls that way before the Lord in desperation. We have sinned against the Lord. That explains their actions. This is a real true grief over their idolatry the last 20 years. I want you to know that every true revival, what leads to it? Penitence. Always. You can hear the pattern in Hosea's famous call, quote, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. You never go from doing pretty well, everything's pretty good, and now revival. What happens is things are going badly. The church, by God's grace, realizes how badly they're doing. There is a brokenness, a pouring forth of soul on the ground before the Lord. 
an admission clear and honest of sin and acceptance of responsibility that we live so far beneath what we should as Christians. And then, once we're torn down in that way, He heals us. He brings revival and does a great work. You see this in revival, in history. Brian Chappell, in his wonderful book, Holiness by Grace, he recounts something that happened during the Great Awakening, which was a revival in the 1700s. He says this, During the Great Awakening, when the Spirit of God revived much of our nation's early faith, Jonathan Edwards, who was a leader in that awakening here in, the, in America, was presiding over a massive prayer meeting. 800 men prayed with him. Into that meeting, a woman sent a message asking the men to pray for her husband. The note described a man who in spiritual pride had become unloving, prideful, and difficult. Edwards read the message in private, and then thinking that perhaps the man described was present, the great preacher made a bold request. Edwards first read the note to the 800 men about this proud individual. Then he asked if the man who'd been described would raise his hand so that the whole assembly could pray for him. 300 men raised their hands. Each had been convicted by the spirit of their sin, and now they longed to confess. When the Holy Spirit descends anew upon His church in a powerful way to do a new great work of revival, we must remember He comes with fire. He is the Spirit who convicts the world, yes, but He also convicts His own people. So when revival is going to happen, what leads to revival? A work of the Spirit to convict His own people, the church, of sin and weakness and failure. That's why one of A.W. Tozer's four counsels for anyone seeking personal revival, one of them is set yourself up for examination. It's frightening. But it's because that brokenness and honest assessment of the church's state is what leads to a real revival of God. What else leads to revival? You see in this passage not only penitence, but you see, we'll call it passion. Passion specifically for Yahweh. He says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Direct your heart. Take your heart and set it on the Lord. That is a passion for the Lord. Because penitence is a turning from failure and sin. But if you're turning from the bales and the astroth of your life, where are you now turning to? It is to the Lord. And the emphasis really lies there. Yes, penitence is necessary, but only so that we can reaffirm our commitment to Yahweh. That's what this is about. A passion for the one true God. When he says serve him only, that's just a consequence because if you set your heart on the Lord, you will serve him only. That will happen in your life. The 2000s, the 2000s, 2000 to 2010, witnessed a kind of revival on a smaller scale. Many of you were there for that. Um, we call it now in hindsight the Reformed Resurgence. Some call it New Calvinism. 
I don't care what you call it. Call it whatever you want. All I know is there were a lot of people, especially younger people, who came to Christ or some who already knew Christ who in that span of time, through a series of events, by the hand of God, adopted an incredibly high view of God. (laughs) Do you remember that? So you would have people who had dropped out of college who had never read one serious book in their whole life. They would come to Christ and they would be reading in old English books of dense theology from Puritans. (laughs) What? How did that? You could not convince them to read a magazine. What had happened there was this immensely high view of God, his sovereignty and his power, his authority, the greatness of his gospel. It had come in and it swept across a whole bit of the population. It wasn't necessarily a nationwide revival. I think it had made it into Time magazine. It was significant, and we feel the ramifications of it still, but that's what happens during every revival. There is a burning away of distractions, the bales and the astaroth, and there is a passion for God Himself, not primarily for political conquest or for receiving this or that that will make our lives better, but there is this passion for God Himself. That's what you see at Mizpah, turning back to the Lord, setting their heart on the Lord. And that is always part of what leads to revival. Penitence, together with passion. The final thing I want to say in this passage that leads to revival is prayer. Verse 5, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. You see at the end of verse 6 that Samuel was also judging Israel there. Not like being critical of them, but that was like the judges from the book of Judges where he's discerning disputes, helping people know the will of God if they have questions, so judging in that sense. But the emphasis here is not upon the judging, it's, it's really upon the prayer. The main thing that happens at Mizpah, the one thing that happens at Mizpah is prayer. That is, of course, led by Samuel who's interceding for the people and offering sacrifice, but the people are behind him wanting him to pray. They are the ones pouring out the water and fasting, and he is praying. Really, there's a reliance on prayer in Mizpah. If you look at verses 8 and 9, they're being attacked by Philistines. This is their whole defensive strategy. If it doesn't work, the nation is wiped out. The entire defensive strategy that we're aware of in verses 8 and 9, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Prayer is always an irremovable part of revival. There is not one revival that has ever happened or ever will without prayer being an essential component, one of the most prominent pieces of it. That story I told of Edwards during the Great Awakening was a prayer meeting with 800 men, as common in a time of revival. Really, prayer is just penitence and passion expressing themselves. How else do you express those? You express them in prayer. If people are all turning to the Lord, then prayer naturally is the same thing. It's a turning to the Lord. Another example from history in 1857 in our country, in New York City, there's a man who was a lay missionary worker in New York City, and he decided that 
This period of time, 1857, actually was one of the greatest economic depressions our nation had experienced before the Great Depression. So many people are out of work. It's a very low time, low ebb. He decided that every Wednesday at a particular church, he would invite businessmen across New York City to join him for one hour on their lunch break to pray for revival. It's 1857. Well, people gather, they pray. Others hear about it. So other churches start inviting businessmen to come and to pray. And then eventually other cities hear about it. It's happening across New York City. It's happening in other major cities in our country. There are these prayer meetings everywhere with people praying for revival. And you know the consequence? They estimate that one million people turned to Christ at that time. And that is the way it is with revival. Is I don't know if you can say the prayer is what led into the revival. The revival led into the prayer. It's all intertangled. The point is there's always prayer. And you see that at Mizpah. This is a time of prayer. That's what this is about. They're not strategizing what they're going to do with their nation's economy or how they're going to defeat the Philistines. There's none of that. They have gathered, Samuel says, so I can pray for you. That's why they're there. And to recommit themselves to the Lord. We often think of revival as being a time when so many lost people in the world turn to Christ. Now that is true as an observation, but that's not essentially what a revival is. A revival essentially is when believers, the church, comes back alive. That's why it's a revival. It'd just be a revival for people in the world. They were never alive. But within the church, a revival means you were alive, but your candlestick is dim. And the church falls asleep at a time of low ebb. And the Spirit comes and wakes up the church. So it begins in the church among God's people, waking up, praying, pleading to the Lord, penitence, passion, prayer. And then lots of lost people are saved. Because the church then does what the church is supposed to do and goes out with zeal and shares the gospel and prays and God acts. That's why one sign that we are awake or awakening is this renewed passion for prayer. So if you ever want a barometer of, is revival coming? Is it happening? Is it leading? Are we leading toward revival? Then just go to prayer meetings. Isn't that convicting? (laughs) That's convicting. Now, I know we have meals with ours now, so maybe that's not a perfect barometer. Maybe you come for the meal. But go to prayer meetings in churches, which are often the least attended events, but When you start seeing more people in the prayer meetings, now we can talk about revival. Now we may be on the cusp of revival. Prayer always is tied up with revival. Notice Samuel's promise in verse 3. It's direct your heart to the Lord and he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. They believe this promise. And so they tell him later, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Prayer is when we stop trying to get the box to save us and we direct our heart to the Lord and in desperate prayer cry out and say, God, we can't make a revival. We can't save all our neighbors. We can't wake up our city. We can't wake up ourselves. Desperate prayer to the Lord is only you can do this. And if you don't, we're destroyed. So penitence, passion, and prayer, those are the things that lead to revival. I want to move now in our text to the things that revival leads to. 
The two things revival leads to are opposition and power. If you look in verse 7, you'll see opposition. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Israel finally does what she should always have done. You've done that in your life where you know you should repent of these sins and turn back to the Lord, but you're delaying, delaying. But finally, you do it. Finally, you surrender to the Lord, and boom, you're in a calamity. (laughs) You're in a disastrous situation because you did it. Seems, wow, did I do the wrong thing here? They're finally doing what they should have at Mizpah, and because they're doing the right thing, they're now almost all about to be wiped out. When revival happens, it's always that way, and it makes sense because revival is always emerging from low ebb in the culture around, you know, and so if you're emerging from that with a zeal for the Lord and a renouncing of sin, then the culture around goes, well, that's terrible. That's a judgment on us. We don't like that. We are against that, and the low ebb everywhere else around, even in the church, turns against the revival. Is like the dragon in Revelation who has his mouth open, ready to consume, in this case, the revival that is being born. And it's always that way we hear of in the Great Awakening when Whitfield would preach and those trumpeters would show up. Somebody would show up with a trumpet and play it as loud as they can while he preaches. People come with dead cats and garbage to throw at the preachers. There's always strong opposition. No revival ever happens and the world goes, wow, that's great. I like that. There's always an even violent response culturally to a real revival that happens. There's always critics. In this case, there are Philistines who see it happening and go, here's our opportunity to destroy God's people. Indeed, wrote Paul in the New Testament, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what happens if a whole church or many churches all desire eagerly and zealously to live godly in Christ Jesus opposition. But secondly and finally, revival leads to power. See verses 10 and 11 again. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated. Who would have thought it? Before Israel, and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah, westward probably, and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. We don't know where that is, but almost certainly they're driving the Philistines back to their coastal plain out of the hills. Samuel had offered up this nursing lamb to propitiate, to turn God away from his wrath toward their sin and to have his favor toward them. So that he'd be behind them. So he's interceding for the nation. They offer the lamb saying, don't be angry with us, God. Be with us. We need you now. And you and I have a better sacrifice than a nursing lamb. We have the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have someone greater than Samuel interceding for us. We have Jesus Christ in heaven interceding on the merits of his own sacrifice. Is God for us? God is for us. God is for us at times of low ebb too. I want you to know that. But you see it most obviously in a time of revival when impossibilities become common occurrences. 
You know, like in Solomon's day, there was such great wealth that silver that's usually so valued wasn't even considered valuable because it's everywhere. In times of revival, it's that way. Oh, John down the street who's so far from God and abuses his family and is addicted to drugs, he's come to Christ and cleaned up and he's in the church. That's exciting, but we've seen that over and over and over and over again. For us to hear that now is overwhelming. In times of revival, it's like the silver of Solomon's day. Such is God's power when he shows up in a time of revival. I mean, thundering is a great picture of it, isn't it? That's literally what he did with the Philistines. And this isn't the false whipped up enthusiasm of 20 years earlier. We'll make thunder, stomp on the ground. Some revivalists try to make revival like that. But this is God. When they have nowhere else to turn, he's their entire defensive strategy. It is revival or bust. And God thunders against the enemy, throws them into confusion. It's a great picture because they just turned from Baal, a fake storm god, who never once thundered for them, you know, never once. And now they've turned to Yahweh, and he thunders out of the sky for them. Now that Israel has humbly cast herself on the Lord, God brings thunder. And only God could do it. And that is true of revival too. I know I speak highly of it. I mean, I long for it. I hope you long for revival. Who of us is adequate for revival? We think we're too weak. We're too common. We're not like those Christians back then. We're not Whitfields. And Whitfield was common. You know that? He was just a Christian, just like you and me. Even Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And God heard his prayer and did mighty things. Can we see revival in our day like they saw at Mizpah or like happens in cycles throughout history? Well, why couldn't we? Is it the same God in heaven, the same God who thunders? Is he still faithful to his people? Is he still merciful when we cry out to him? That nothing has changed. We may not see revival in our day, and we will be content to be faithful to our Lord regardless. But let's pray for it. Let's plead for it. Let's be like the pastor who put the church sign outside the door. This church will have either a revival or a funeral. Let's join together in praying that the Lord would search us, convict us, drive out our Baals and our Ashtaroth. And if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then set your heart on Him and He will deliver us. 